Well, thanks again for, for being here. We have um, a, a wonderful opportunity, great privilege. Um, we do maybe once or, 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 or twice a year. Uh, we're able to send mission teams into different parts of the world. Um, recently, a couple weeks, uh, last week, um, a group of our people came back from, uh, from North Korea, which probably is one of the most unreached and most difficult uh, nations in the world to get into. Uh, and our brother James Jay was part of that team to go and to um, pray and to minister and to, to bring the hope of Christ into um, the people of, of North Korea in their lives. So he's going to come and he's going to share with us um, about the things that God's doing both now as well as uh, in the future. So let's welcome James and give him a round of applause as he comes to share with us. Um, thanks. Uh, uh, my name is James. Um, I feel like, um, you know, I've been coming to Harvest for such a long time that I know everybody, but uh, there are a lot of new faces. So let me just give a quick introduction. Uh, my name is James, my wife, Casey. I have a son, Timothy, Jonathan. Um, and um, I had the privilege to go to um, North Korea with a group of our church members, weeks ago. I don't know, John, if you can throw that up for me. Um, so that's our team. Uh, that's Richard Yang. I don't know if you know him. He's, uh, he used to live here in Orlando. He's up in Maryland now. He's an optometrist up in, like I said, Maryland. He went with us. Uh, that's uh, Sangmi Chua. That's my mom, Pastor Kim. Mi Kyung Lee. Uh, that's Mrs. Kim. Uh, she's one of the missionaries that serves in China. Uh, that's Pastor Kim. He's a pastor in Korea. Um, that wants to uh, head the the MANA mission in Korea. Um, so I think he, he wanted to go. And then that's Mr. Yu at the end, um, Eddie's dad. Uh, he's the uh, director of missions here at Harvest. And so um, that that's our team. I'm behind the camera. You can't see me. but uh, um, And so uh, two of those folks, uh, Sungmi and Mi Kyung, um, they wanted to go to North Korea because they feel like God is calling them to long-term mission service. And so they wanted to uh, go and see opportunities and see what God uh, um, had in store for them. So if you can keep them in your prayers, um, I know that um, they're seeking uh, guidance and wisdom uh, for that. Um, the gentleman uh, to the your left would be Richard. He's an optometrist, and he's one of the reasons why I went back to uh, North Korea this year. So, so the the, the mission, the uh, the uh, organization that we go with is called MANA USA. Uh, it's funded by churches here throughout United States, supported by doctors, uh, business uh, people. Um, they donate money uh, to run uh, mainly three operations, which is a huge hospital uh, in a city called Lajin in North Korea. Uh, we run a bread factory. I don't know if you can just kind of scroll through those pictures, John, for me. Uh, we have a bread factory. Uh, that's a bread factory there. If you go to the next picture, that's the bread that they make, between eight to 12,000. Um, and then they uh, distribute that throughout uh, the city because we can't go beyond the city borders. Uh, and they uh, distribute that to orphanages, elementary schools, uh, wherever, um, you know, there are children, they, uh, they give that out. Uh, Go ahead. And then there's also, um, that's, that's the hospital there. Um, if you can keep going. Um, yeah, just, and then there's another part where they also make notebooks uh, to give to elementary students. And that's Richard trying to 
uh, make some notebooks. And then uh, th- they just started a new, uh, a new uh, elementary school, uh, pre-K elementary school that they just built uh, with donations from um, a couple of individuals here in the United States. And they'll also be teaching children. So that's the, that's the, the gist of the organization. We send um, from our church. Pastor Kim goes in twice a year since he's the director. And then every month or so, uh, between anywhere from six to 12 doctors throughout the United States will go in um, on their own, funding themselves, taking vacation time uh, to serve at the hospital. Uh, Whatever their uh, field may be, they go there and they can perform surgeries, um, operations, simple eye tests, blood tests, whatever it may be. Uh, But also what they do is they hope to uh, teach North Korean doctors um, the latest techniques, um, something as simple as, you know, maybe keep, keeping a needle sanitary or, uh, you know, how to uh, administer proper IV. Uh, they go in and uh, they serve, and, and this is the work that they do. And, and so um, <clears throat> my trip um, to North Korea actually started uh, last year when my wife and I, we went. Uh, on our way out of North Korea, um, uh, we uh, happened to give a ride to... Uh, a lady missionary by the name of Lily. And um, the, this lady, Lily, uh, has many, many operations that she conducts in North Korea. But one of the things that she does is um, uh, she has an eyeglass store in the city of Lajin that she has set up. And uh, pretty much you, um, you go in, get an eye checkup, and then you make glasses. And it's very cheap in terms of U.S. money. It's probably like a dollar or two uh, our cost. But even in that small f- amount the people in North Korea can't afford. Um, so on our way out, uh, she, was, she was accompanied by another optometrist, Jamie, uh, who, who came in uh, for a week to um, take, uh, give eye exams. And with, uh, she had a bunch of prescriptions that she was on her way out to North Korea into China with those prescriptions to make the glasses and to come back into uh, North Korea and to distribute that. So we gave her a ride, and she talked at length with Pastor Kim and after finishing uh, her conversation with Pastor Kim on our way back, a um, uh, trip back to uh, the U.S., Pastor Kim mentioned, you know, if I had a couple of thousand dollars, whatever this amount was that he threw out there, he said, if I had that, I would like to give this to uh, Lily and support her. So I didn't, I didn't think much of it until, um, you know, we came back from Korea and, um, you know, I went through our paperwork, um, all the bills that had to be paid, you know. I was gone for about two, two and a half weeks. And so after all the bills were paid, after everything that needed to be taken care of was taken care of, um, the figure that Pastor Kim had mentioned to me was the figure that I had left over uh, that I, wanted, I could put into savings. So um, I thought, okay, this is, this is not, you know, often that I get to put a, a lump of money away. So I just took this money and I put it into savings right away. And I mentioned to Pastor Kim that I want to go back to North Korea because I really felt like, you know, God had provided me this money to uh, give to Lily. And then I started talking with my friend Richard here, uh, who's an optometrist and, um, you know, perfect fit for Lily in her uh, eyeglass shop. And so I, uh, I talked with him and, you know, turns out that he had a heart for North Korea also, him and his wife. And they want to do uh, some type of long-term missions. And so uh, he was really excited to go. And so uh, here we are, you know. Um, you know, the process went into effect, and uh, we got all our stuff ready, and we were headed off to North Korea uh, with visions of seeing hundreds of North Korean people, uh, giving them eye exams, and, um, 
You know, I wanted to make glass. I had a, I had an eyeglass store, one of the many businesses that I used to have before. And so I can make uh, simple glasses. And so I thought Richard was going to give the exams. I was going to make glasses and we're going to bring sight to all these North Korean people in, in this particular city. So I had this, I had this grand scheme in my head and I thought, man, this is going to be a great mission trip. So um, off we go to North Korea. And um, as soon as you know, crossing the border is, is, is a little bit scary, even though Pastor Kim and the MANA team has gone in before many, many times with, without any problems. But you, you also realize that this is a government that, you know, can do whatever they want. And so we realized this as soon as uh, we started uh, checking in our baggage and stuff like that. Uh, the money that I had donated for glasses, uh, Lily had purchased about roughly a thousand glasses. And so uh, it was underneath our bus and um, we wanted to take it in. But they said no. They, they, they didn't want us to let, uh, take it in. And, um, you know, we couldn't figure out why. But it, eventually what it was is that uh, it wasn't properly documented. And when we say properly documented, it means there wasn't sufficient, like, taxes or add-on fees that we need to give at the border to allow these things to go in. So they were upset that we were trying to bring in extra items with us without letting them know that we couldn't pay for in advance. And so um, there were some negotiations and some tense moments, but then they decided that if we gave them some food that we had underneath the bus, like a big bag of noodles and some, some items like that, uh, we, if we let that stay at the guard house, then we can get through. So um, that was agreed on. And so we left some food and they let us come through. And, and so um, the uneventful trip, we got into Lajin. And so we're really excited, raring to go. Uh, and then we got the bad news. The North Korean people, they didn't want us and Richard and our team to go visit Lily's office. Um, you know, um, Pastor Kim knows the officials in town. They're very cordial. They're very friendly. But it made us realize that it's, it's a country that doesn't operate like, like we can or we do. If the officials say you can't go visit someplace, you can't go. Um, so we realized quickly that, um, you know, that... This is part of our mission training. One of the things that we have to be is flexible. And so we just um, prayed that maybe uh, if we sent in another request the next day, that maybe they will allow us to go visit uh, Lily's office and, you know, give some exams and things like that. So in the meantime, um, we were able to go see, uh, I don't know if you were, you were able to see some of that, um, like a wind farm. Um, and then we, we were able to see a couple of businesses. And this was a, like an answered prayer to me because last year when, we, when I came back, I, I really felt like North Korea was a really dark place. That um, I know that God was working there, but I couldn't see any visible signs of God working. You know? And as I'm praying, you know, God, show me the works that you are doing there. And so we came upon uh, two particular families. There are more, but we just only had time to see two. One, one family, um, is a, it just lives down the street from the Mana compound. And he has, I have no pictures, he has a, um, he has a family, uh, three children, two to six, and they live in North Korea, and uh, they run a transportation, a bus company. Uh, they hire North Korean people, and um, they uh, offer bus service within the city of Lajin. This is their business, um, as far as the North Korean officials know. Uh, but we were told otherwise, that they are missionaries that uh, have uh, come into North Korea uh, and wanted to... Um, you know, stick a claim in, in this particular city. And so I had an opportunity to pray for them. And um, it was just a really humbling experience uh, to know that uh, these folks, uh, they're non-Korean, um, could lift up their family and bring them to North Korea um, 
you know, I, I could see if it was just a couple of themselves, but the entire family, you know, they're homeschooled and, um, you know, they, the children were very uh, happy, um, playful, and, you know, they, they really seemed excited to be there. And I could really feel a sense of love for the North Korean people through them. And what an honor and privilege it was to pray for them and, and their ministry while we were there. Uh, the second family that we got to visit was uh, a, a Korean family, Chris. Uh, they also have three children. Uh, the youngest, I believe, is five. The oldest is 12. Uh, middle boy, very rambunctious. Um, but they raise goats. Um, he's an engineer from UCLA. Um, so he's like way out here, right? I think left brain, right? I think raising goats is not very technical. I think it's more of an art. But he raises goats. And the reason why he raises goats is that he wanted to uh, uh, allow, you know, if he wanted to come in and say, I want to raise cows, I think the North Korean government would probably say no because, you know, milk is very common. But he wanted to raise goat milk to make goat cheese and, you know, products made out of goat's milk. Well, it turns out North Koreans don't like cheese, uh, especially goat cheese. And so he found that when he was distributing cheese to give away to North Korean people, he, in the dumpsters, he would notice his cheese piled up. So he realized quickly that, okay, cheese is not the way to go. But instead, he'll just distribute milk. And so what he did last year was he, took, he raised all these goats and uh, he distributed milk throughout the region. And so uh, there was another family there. And so it was, it was really a blessing to see uh, people uh, using uh, businesses that, you know, for a business, a profit and loss statement, they're probably in the negative. They're not making money, right? But uh, in terms of uh, profit and loss, in terms of kingdom of God, you know, I think they're uh, wealthy beyond, you know, earthly measures. And so it was truly a blessing to see them and work, uh, work uh, you know, visit them, uh, you know, joke around with the children and spend some time with them. And it really was a great, great time. And so um, having, doing, having doing all this and not being able to see the doctors and, I mean, not to be able to see patients and, and make eyeglasses, I really felt like, you know, it was kind of a, a wasted trip in a sense that, you know, we got to go there and we weren't able to do anything. Um, and then on the last day, um, one of the ladies that works with MANA shared a testimony with us about um, the 13, 10 to 13 years that she has worked with MANA, uh, she mentioned that uh, at a certain point, nobody has ever mentioned to her about the gospel. Nobody spoke to her about the gospel. However, working with Christians that have come in, uh, specifically Elder Shin, he's the gentleman that started MANA, Pastor Kim, the other doctors that have come in, she noticed that Christians think differently. Christians act differently. We behave differently. And uh, she she got that sense right away, and she said that uh, working with Christians for four to five years, six years, she came to realize that there was something missing in her life, and that uh, that she needed to come uh, to know Christ. And so Pastor Kim, several years ago, uh, baptized her um, and and blessed her, and and she's a Christian now. And so for me, um, that was God telling me, don't worry about the exams. Don't worry about making glasses. You know, that thing will come. Uh, what's important is that you make your presence known here in North Korea. And by your presence, you know, people of North Korea, even though you can't speak with them, even though you can't verbally uh, explain the gospel to them, even though you can't uh, tell them that Jesus loves them, that they're able to see that. And so um, inside, I was thinking that... Um, 
you know, I know that it's just a school that we just built and that we are teaching children. But it's my prayer that, you know, through the teachers, that people will come to see Jesus as the great teacher, you know, and in the, uh, in the bread that we make, that people won't just see that as a physical bread, but that people will see that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. You know, that th- there's that um, communication that we can go. And then in the hospitals where we administer medicine and we heal and um, we treat people, that people will come to realize Jesus Christ as the, as the healer and the giver of life. And that um, even though we may not be able to speak to them, that they can see that through our actions. And so um, I was really humbled. I was grateful for uh, what God was showing me in North Korea. And um, <clears throat> I think my mission uh, trip there um, is, is twofold. One is, is a message for me, but I think it's also a message for, for us, our congregation. And if I can just share a quick verse from um, this book by Tim Keller. It's called The Prodigal God. If you get a chance to read it, um, do so. This is Pastor DL's copy that I've stolen from him. You might not get it back. Um, uh, this is uh, this is a Tim Keller writing about Apostle Paul and uh, how he shows us about wanting to give to other people. Um, it says he doesn't put pressure directly on on the will, uh, saying, "I am an apostle and this is your duty to me." Nor pressure directly on the emotions, telling them stories about how much the poor are suffering and how much more they have than the sufferers. Instead, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul is taking them back to the gospel. He is saying, think on his costly grace until you want to give like he did. And so... um, I want to thank you as a congregation. I want to thank Pastor DL. Whenever um, you know he preaches, I'm sure you you all know now that he ends always with the gospel message. And um, I think um, as sometimes we feel like, oh, that's a signal a signal for us to start getting ready to go to the bathroom or shuffling our paperwork. That it's the closing of sermon. I think it's it's a it's a reminder every week um, about the gospel and what what um, what it means to us. And um, and out of the realization of his love for us, it causes us to go out and to give, uh, to go out and serve on missions uh, and to live a life that's worthy of the cost of Christ. And so um, I thank you as a congregation for encouraging me, praying for me. Um, I want to thank Casey, who two weeks uh, have watched the kids and uh, they didn't miss any limbs. Um, they were only late for school a couple of times. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I thank her for uh, holding the fort. Uh, I need to thank uh, my cousins, Paul and David, who didn't burn down wings and uh, allow me to go and give generously to uh, the mission field. And um, I look forward to serving with you guys uh, in the future in missions. And I really encourage you guys to uh, take an opportunity. I know that... Uh, uh, you might think that this is a common thing that happens in churches, but for my mom, who's been a churchgoer for uh, all her life, she's never gone to missions. This is her first mission. She's 68 years old. Um, and some of us have an opportunity to go at a very young age. And so I encourage you uh, to go, um, to make time, and to serve, and, and see where God is um, leading you. Thank you. You. Praise God. How many of us want to go to North Korea now? <laughs> Good night.
Um, yeah, not only James, but his mother, 68 years old. Um, yeah, we don't have any excuses, guys. If we know grace, then um, we we got to go. <laughs> we got to go. There's, um, yeah, there's too much, too much work to be done and too much uh, eternal reward to be reaped for us not to go. Um, I'm sure if, uh, yeah, if you have any other questions, James would love to, to talk to you about uh, his trip and about the opportunities that would be there. In the meantime, definitely um, be generous, be gracious in your support, the uh, Dominican Republic and, and Ecuador mission teams, and you know, let's do this together. And put hell out of business. That's what we're here to do. Um, we're continuing in our series here in, in Genesis, and I want to do things a little bit differently. Here's, here's what I'm trying to do. Um, we're going to walk through a story. It's a love story, so hopefully, um, though it may be a little bit long, it's exciting. I think it's exciting. I think this is like crazy. One of the craziest love stories ever, um, but uh, it's going to come from Genesis 29. We're continuing the series about Jacob's life. Um, I, I'm going to kind of walk through the text and, and kind of uh, maybe give a little bit of commentary to help us to understand, to get into the ancient Near East context, and then as we get towards... Um, uh, to the end of the story, I just want to uh, highlight two points, right? two thoughts that come out as we think about um, what it is that God's trying to teach us from Genesis chapter 29 uh, in this amazing, uh, amazing love story here. So uh, remember last week, Jacob has just met God for the first time, had this dream at, at Bethel, the house of God. But before that, uh, he's jacked up. Right? He's still jacked up. We all know this. We're jacked up. We meet God. Doesn't mean that we're not jacked up anymore. Right? We're still messed up. We still struggle. We backslide. We, we trip up along the way. All kinds of, of, of flaws in us. Um, just because we meet God, life doesn't flip and change automatically. And that's the case with Jacob. So um, he stole the birthright from his brother. Remember this? He stole the blessing from his brother by deceiving his dad. Okay? He's on the run because Esau, his older brother, finds out and he wants to kill him. So he wants to kill him, and so Jacob's on uh, the run. He's running for his life. He gets to Bethel about 55 miles away, and then about 500 miles away. He's been on the run for about a month. Finally, he gets to a place called Haran. He doesn't know it's, that's where he's, uh, he's, he's arrived, but it's the place that his mom told him to go. You need to go to your Uncle Laban, and you'll be safe. So Genesis 29, uh, verse 1, we'll start. And if um, Okay, so it's going to be up here. I'm going to uh, read and stop, read and stop along the way. So you've got to be alert here. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large, okay, large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. So pause for a second. Here's what's going on. Jacob gets to this place on his journey. He's been going for, again for about a month, and there's this well. Very interesting. A lot of cool things happen at wells. Okay? We're going to see that this great love story, well, this what looks like a great love story is going to take place at a well. But over the top of the well, there is this huge rock. It says here literally, well, what does it say? But, 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 but. The stone was large. Okay, This is a large stone, not just like a little dinky thing, but it's large because of several reasons. One, they didn't want dirt and debris to get into the water. You all know um, these days, if you look at uh, humanitarian efforts or you look at social justice efforts, one of the big things that they try and do is raise money for wells for clean water in Africa, for clean water in South America, for clean water in the developing world, because we all know that if water gets dirty, then it can have a terrible effect on all of uh, the way we live, our health, our crops, and all this stuff. So huge thing over it, but also it would prevent uh, 
critters, animals, things like that from, from getting in there. So huge stone over top of it. Verse 4, Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. No way, he said. Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. So he gets to this place and he sees a bunch of people. He's like, hey, what are you guys doing? What's your name? And he finds out that gets their information, says, where are you from? We're from Haran. You know, you meet somebody like, hey, where are you from? Uh, I'm from Lake Mary. Lake Mary. Oh, my gosh. Lake Mary. Do you know um, such and such and such? And they're like, yeah, we know them. So he's, he's doing this thing. We're from Haran. Oh, my gosh. No way. Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him. Is he well? Yes. So he's just kind of making and he finally realizes that after this long journey, he's gotten to this place. That he's been seeking and searching. He doesn't know he's there, but, he, but, but he's there. And yes, he is. And here he comes with his daughter, Rachel. Verse 7. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we'll water the sheep. Here's what's going on. Okay, so he finds out that he's at this place he's supposed to be. And it says, here comes, in, in verse 6, here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. And we're going to see this later, but Rachel is a babe, okay? And so he sees her, and he's like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. He's like filled with this. Because you know, everything about his life is jacked up. Everything about his life is completely broken. The only person who's ever loved him in his life is 500 miles away, and he's never going to see her again. So he's got all this ugliness in his life. And so he sees Rachel, verse 7, look, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. Here's what, he, here's what he's doing. Let me kind of put this in, in our language here. Jacob is trying to be a little bit Rico Suave here. He's trying, to get his, he's trying to get his love game on, right? So he's here, and he's like, oh, my gosh, there's Rachel, but there's these bum shepherds sitting around. I can't get my game on if they're here. You know how it is. Like my, my brother, when he would try and like in, in, in middle school or high school, he's three years older than me. So he'd be with like, we, we'd all be hanging out with this girl. And he's like, David, you, don't you have to go do something? I'm like, nope, I got nothing to do. He's like, you've got homework to do. I was like, nope, I did it all. And he would kick me. He's like, get out of here because he's trying to get his game on. This is what he's doing. He's saying, look, the sun is still high. They're not supposed to be here. Just hurry up and water them and then go back. And they're like, nope, we can't do that. He's like, why not? They say the flocks, um, flocks need to get here. The stone has been rolled away. We have to wait for the stone to be rolled away. And then, and then the sheep, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll water the sheep and then go back. See, here's, people have explained it in one of three ways. One, literally, it does take several shepherds to roll this stone away. And so they're just waiting for them. Second explanation is they're lazy. They're just kind of chilling. They just want to hang out and get some rest, and then well, they'll do their thing, and then they'll go back. Third explanation is they know Rachel's coming, and they want to kind of get a glimpse of the beauty here, right? So uh, whichever those three explanations you choose, um, the reality is Jacob wants to get his game on. He can't because these shepherds are there. There's a big, large stone over the mouth of the well. So verse 9, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a hot shepherdess. Verse 10, when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the whale and watered his uncle's sheep. Holy cow. Okay, this is, you remember Jacob, he's the smooth-skinned one. He's not Esau. He's not the bear grills. He's not the, 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 the bear guy. He's just a simple, he's the pansy. But all of a sudden, he sees Rachel, and he becomes Hercules. And he moves this stone all by himself. 
I, I had a friend like this in high school. <laughs> His name was Jason, not, not Jason Lee. I didn't know him in high school. But I had a friend named Jason, and he liked girls, and he, he liked to work out. So, so he would do his bench press thing, and on the, on the ceiling of his, uh, of his bench press room, he would put the picture of this girl that he liked. And he would do his thing, and then when he got really time to like push it, push it this last time, he would look up, and he's like, do it for her, do it for her, and then he would, he would push it up. <laughs> so this is Jacob here, right? Wimpy, kind of like, you know, this is the, but when he sees her, he's like, oh my gosh, and he rolls this stone away. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. I don't know why he kissed her. It's kind of like, you know. But he had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebecca, so he ran and told her father. Now, interesting, interesting thing here. Okay. The, the generation before, Isaac, Jacob's father, also met his wife at a well. He also met his wife at a well, but the two stories could not be more different. Outside of the fact that it happened at a well, Isaac, Isaac in meeting Rebecca was done with much prayer. It was done with a lot of, 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 of thinking through her character, examining her character, examining how she waters and, and shows hospitality to other people. It involved other people. There was a servant of his father who went to, to look along with him. But here, Jacob is completely different. There's no prayer. It's, there's no looking at her character. All he sees, he sees she's like, fine, and he goes for it. So far, on the surface, everything looks good. Everything looks good because Jacob has finally found this one thing. You know how it is in our lives. If our lives are jacked up, broken, we're down in the dumps, everything is ugly about our lives. There's one thing in our lives. We think, if I can just get that thing, if I can just get that thing, then it will erase all the ugliness out of my life. And maybe uh, you know readily what that thing is. Right? Maybe it's easy for us, first of all, to recognize our brokenness. Life stinks. We've got uh, parents who, who are always yelling at us. We've got rebellious children. Or you've got uh, D's, straight D's on your report card and, and parents are yelling at you for whatever it is. There's this one thing in our lives, I think, if I can have this one thing, then it will erase all the ugliness out of my life. Maybe it's to get a good-looking girl and to go to prom with her. And then to make that your profile picture on Facebook, everyone has made fun of you, but now you've, you've, you've made it, right? Or, or maybe it's uh, that, a, a new car, right? That, that, that cool new car. I don't know what the cool new car. Maybe it's like a 2012 uh, Camry or something like that. You're like, if I just get that thing, holy cow, I'm be in with everybody else. Whatever it is. And so verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him, and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. What are all these things that he's telling him about? He's telling him this story of his life. He's telling him how, you know what, I, I, uh, why am I here? Here's why I'm here, because my brother Esau's mad at me. Why is your brother Esau mad at you? Because when we were younger, I stole his birthright for a bowl of red stuff. Oh my gosh, that's awful. But you know what, that, that's, not, that's not even the, the end of it. When my dad, Isaac, was old and all this stuff, he tells the story of how he deceived him, and now I'm here. Tells him all these things. In verse 14, Laban says, you are my own flesh and blood. To us, that sounds like, oh, we are family, right? It sounds like, oh, it's so sweet. But literally what he's saying is we're cut from the same cloth. Saying, Jacob, you've deceived all these people. You finally met your match. He doesn't realize it. He thinks this is all like a big family gathering, but... The story is about to turn awfully sour here. 
After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. So he's been there a whole month, and after a month, he began to realize certain things about people. After a month, here's what Laban realized about, realized about Jacob. One, he's a hard worker. But two, he's got googly eyes for Rachel. Right? He is completely and utterly smitten. And for a month, he's trying and trying to get his game on. But under the watchful eye of Uncle Laban, he can't do anything. And Laban realizes that this guy's desperate. He's desperate for love. And the third thing he realizes is that guy's broke as a joke. And so he says to him, hey, just because you're a relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And it sounds like, wow, this is pretty cool. He's going to pay him for his work. Here's what really he's doing. He's taking a familial relationship, and he's degrading that into a means of economic profit. Here's what a family should have done in those times. Laban, knowing that his father sent Jacob away penniless, would have brought Jacob into his home, had him work, but worked so that he could build his own home, so they could have his own place, so that he could have his own family. Instead, here's what he's doing. Yeah, you worked for me for a whole month, and now I'm going to start paying you money. Literally, this is, this is what's going on. He's saying, look, you used to be a son, but now you're going to be an indentured servant to me. And it sounds really cool in English, but that's nothing like the tone that's being communicated in the Hebrew language. So he's like, look, tell me what your wages should be. You are now going to become enslaved to me. Now, Laban had two daughters, not just one, two. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, Laban's got two daughters, Leah, the older, Rachel, the younger. Leah, her name means cow, okay? Cow, C-O-W. Um, how do you say, I don't know how you say cow in Spanish. I don't, I don't, actually, I don't know how to say it in Korean either. Um, yeah, so imagine that being your, your name. Like you're, you're, you're a, a Hispanic person, a Latino person, whatever, and your name is, is that. Or you're a Korean person, and your name is, is cow. Like every time they call your name, hey, cow, come down for dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've got Leah here. She's the older. She's cow. Got Rachel the younger. Her name means you, not like you, but E W E, like a lamb. It's just kind of for a farmer like Laban. This makes sense, agri- agricultural terms. But he doesn't see his daughters like human beings. We'll see this later. We'll see this next week. Actually, he sees them more as commodities to be sold, bought, traded. You've got two daughters, uh, Rachel, the lamb. Okay, that's kind of nice, right? And, but you've got a cow also. Then here's what the description, verse 17. Leah had weak eyes. What in the world does that mean? You ever, we don't use this language much these days. Oh, my gosh, you see that new guy at church? No. What's he look like? You know, the one with weak eyes. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, well, we, we can see it in context because Leah had weak eyes. Rachel was lovely and form and beautiful. It's not talking about the, the, you know, how like she needs Richard Yang to go and give her new glasses. That's not what it's talking about. Saying that she probably most likely commentators say that this uh, weak eyes means that she lacks the sparkle and the twinkle that... Uh, the Orient culture prized in beautiful people. It was kind of like dull, just not glossy, and just kind of there. So she's got weak eyes, and she's a cow. And then you've got Rachel, who's lovely in form. Not only does she have an amazing body, but she's beautiful also. You've got these two daughters. Jacob, verse 18, was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
So what he's doing here, he's, he's arranging a price for the bride. In the ancient Near East, this is what they would do. It would, uh, the father of the groom would give money, pay a bride price. This was kind of like a trust fund in case uh, the husband would divorce the wife or the husband would die. There would be this money left over so that they could give it to the, to the bride's family and they could still take care of her and she could survive. So he's working out a bride price. And in Deuteronomy, it tells us that the maximum bride price was 50 shekels. Okay. Average uh, price of a, of a laborer was, uh, was, average salary was 10 uh, shekels every year. So according to Deuteronomy, the maximum bride price was five years of work. Hey, what does Jacob say? I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. All of a sudden, Jacob has, be, has become Esau, willing to overpay for something because of the deep emptiness in his own heart. And what is this thing in your life, my friends? What is these things in your life that you're willing to overpay because you think my life is ugly if I can just get this thing, if I can just get this person, if I can just have this possession, if I can just have this status. If people can just see me as this kind of a person, then all of this ugliness will be wiped out. Because we all most likely have something like this. Verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Right? How's this romantic, right? It's all the ladies are like, oh, my God, if I could have someone like Jacob, right? Seven years, but it seemed like just a few days because of his love for her. Like, I'll climb every mountain. I'll cross any sea just to be with you. You know, this is, this is his love that he has for her. And then verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. What he's, what he's literally saying, and they, they kind of tone it down, make it PG, but what he's saying is, I want, to have, I want to sleep with my wife. I want to sleep with her. Give her to me. After a seven-year engagement process where he couldn't touch her, couldn't do anything with her, seven years have passed since this, this love was growing and this, this, this uh, sense of, I, I want her so badly. Seven years have passed. The time has come, and he's like, I want her. Verse 22, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. Verse 23, but when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. You're like, how stupid can he be? You've got a lovely informed, beautiful lamb and then you've got a weak eyed cow. How can you not tell? Because weddings in those days were not done the way they're done today. They're not done, uh, weren't done with like a, a person standing in the front and people, and then all these people gather and say, marriage, right? Marriage is for the reason we, that's not like that. The way that was back then is that families would get together and they would sign a contract. Okay, this is the contract. When the agreed upon date would come, then they'd have a week-long feast, whining and dining and all of this stuff. Right? They have this, this long party. And at the end of this time, at the end of this time, then and only then would the, would the groom get his wife, his bride. So here they are, they're drinking and they're having all kinds of good food and, and Jacob is getting crunk and then they're laughing at him and he's dancing and they're like, go Jacob, go Jacob. And he's like parting like it's, like it's 1 BC and, and all this stuff is happening. Finally, after he's like mad drunk, he's hungover, right? This is the original hangover. This is a prequel to the hangover movies. He's completely jacked up, completely hungover. And they take him into a dark room. They turn out all, well, they don't have lights, but they, they darken the room. He's lying in bed. He's drunk. And they put a veil over the bride. And he, she comes in, gives her 
to the drunk man. They make love. And that's how the story goes. Verses 25 and 26. When morning came, he realized it was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Literally, when he says, why have you deceived me? This is the exact same thing that his brother Esau said. The first point I want to bring out here is this. Your sin always catches up with you. Here's Jacob. He's been deceiving and cunning and doing all of these things. And we think as we read the story, he's gotten away with it. He's gotten the birthright. He's gotten the blessing. He's been blessed. He gets sent away and there's no recourse. Yeah, Esau's chasing, but so far so good, right? Wrong. Because here he works seven years longing for the woman of his dreams only to realize that he gets a cow instead. Why have you deceived me? And this is what Laban says. Verse 26, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Literally, here's what he's literally saying. In our country, we do not give the blessing of the firstborn to the younger. In this context, he's saying we don't give the blessing of the firstborn to be married off. We don't give that to the younger one. But he says it ambiguously. We don't give the blessing of the firstborn. The rights and the privileges of the firstborn aren't given to the younger in our country. I don't know how you do it in your country, Jacob. And all of a sudden, Jacob's like, shut up. That's why he doesn't say, you, you, you fool, you eat. Verse 27, finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years. Verse 28, and Jacob did so. Because he realizes that all this has caught up with him. Realize that he's finally met his match. In verse Genesis chapter 27, two brothers, an older and a younger, were exchanged in front of a man who had lost his sight. In Genesis 29, two sisters, an older for the younger, were exchanged in front of a man who had lost his sight. Touche, Jacob. It's all coming back to you now. Jacob deceived his father whose eyes were weak, literally. And he ends up with a bride whose eyes are weak. You see, sin always catches up to you, people of God. It always does. We think we can fleece God over. We think God is blind like Jacob. We think he's blind like Isaac. He's not. Your sin is always going to catch up with you. Always. So Jacob is running. He thinks, you know what? I finally escaped my past. Like you better bet your bottom dollar that it won't. Because it's coming back at you. Some of us think, you know what, I've been living all of my high school years and I've gone to church and I've looked good and everyone thinks I was a faithful member of our youth ministry and now I'm off in college or now I'm working or whatever it is that you're doing and no one has ever caught me. No one's ever found out. These things are going to come back and they're going to get you, guys. The reason we challenge you and push you and say, hey, don't fall into sin is because we've been there, because we see what the word of God says, because we know that you can't be the one exception out of 18 trillion people that have ever lived on the face of planet Earth. You can't be the exception to the rule. Your sin will always find you out. Hey, we, we, we think, look at the, the, the rate of marriages declining today. 50% of marriages end in divorce. Why? Because people who are married can't be committed. No, it's because the habits that were sown into your single life are coming back to catch up to you when you get married. What you do, I say this all the time, but what you do as a single person is what you're going to do as a married person. You can't think that just because I got away with it now that you're going to get away with it then. It's going to catch up. You live a promiscuous lifestyle in your single years. It's going to ruin your marriage. It is. It always comes back to get you. Let me put it another way for those of us who are parents. We think about this. Uh, th- think about this. Uh, you've got a godly man. 
right? A, a, a leader in the church, perhaps. Someone who is serving faithfully and everyone looks at him and says, you know what, he's doing a great job. But at home, he's very cynical of Christianity, cynical of God, cynical of the pastor, cynical of the worshipers, cynical of the messages. And he hides it well in public. But when he goes home, he talks about how awful things are or how, you know what, I could have done better than that. Or why can't uh, they put me on the praise team because I can sing better than he or whatever it is. And everyone is shocked when they realize. How could the children of this faithful member of the church end up so cynical towards Christianity because our sin always catches up with us. We can't outrun it. There's grace. It forgives us, but still there are consequences. Unless there are consequences, we would not learn the lessons that God's trying to teach us. Sin always catches up to us. That's the first thing. Second thing I I, want to mention here is that, um, I don't know what the bulletin says. I don't know how it says it in there, but your Rachel's will always end up being Leah. Your Rachel's will always end up being Leah. Look what it says in verse 25. When morning came, there was Leah. He goes to bed at night thinking he's with Rachel, wakes up in the morning, it turns out to be Leah. When the hangover's gone, when all is said and done, he's lying there, his, he, he can think straight again, unedited thoughts, he looks over and he realizes that it's Leah. See, when you put your hope to erase your ugliness in anything in this life, no matter how beautiful it looks on the surface, in the morning, it will always be Leah. It will always be Leah. What you think is so beautiful when you wake up, it's always going to be a cow. It's always going to be disappointing to you. And this is a picture. Tim Keller, he preaches a great sermon on this called The Woman No One Loved. If you get a chance, you should listen to it. But he says, this is a picture of the cosmic disappointment from the Garden of Eden onward. Anytime we put our hope in something to give us ultimate satisfaction in this life, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that reputation that you've been working to earn, that gift, that talent, that possession that you have, you go to bed thinking that it's beautiful. You wake up in the morning, it's always Leah. You know how this is. Those of you who've gotten hungover and woke up in the morning, you're like, what am I doing with my life? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, we have four options. When you realize that this is the case, when you realize that in the morning it will always be Leah, you've got four options. One, the option of a fool is to say, you know what? Rachel just wasn't good enough or Leah wasn't good enough. I'll just get another, I'll just get another girl or I'll just get another guy. You realize that that guy's not going to satisfy you, so you get another one. He says, Lewis says, I'm not saying this, but Lewis says, you're a fool if you're doing this. You go from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy thinking that you can find satisfaction. You go from girl to girl to girl thinking that you can find satisfaction. That you can't do it. You put all of your hope into that one thing. In the morning, it's Leah. You go looking for that same thing in different places. He says, this is the first response, the one we usually turn to, the response of a fool. That didn't do it for me, so maybe I can just get another one. That didn't do it for me, maybe another one. This friend didn't do it, so I'll find another friend. This group of friends didn't think I was cool enough, so maybe this group of friends will. Says this is your first option, and it's the option of a fool. The second option that we go to is the option of a self-hater. It's the kind of person who says, you know what? I'm just not, I'm just not meant to be satisfied. I'm just not worthy of love. I will never get a date. Everyone else is going to prom, but not me. Everyone else is being happy, but not me. Everyone else is going to have this in their life, but not me. It's just me. I'm the problem. I'm broken. I'm messed up, and there's no way that I'm ever going to find happiness in this world, in this life. 
says some of us go to that place and we start beating ourselves up and we become completely incapacitated and paralyzed from doing anything because we feel like there's no happiness, there's no hope for me in this life. The third option that Lewis says we turn to is the option of a cynic. He says, you know what, this world is just jacked up. This world is messed up. Why even try? Why even try? I'm not going to get it. You're not going to get it. Nobody's going to find it. Why try in this life? Everything that we look for, everything that we turn to is always going to end up empty. This world is just, it's just the way that it is. This is the way life is. Life stinks. We do as much as we can in this life and then we die and that's it. But Lewis says there's a fourth option, a biblical option. This is what he says. You realize that in the morning it's always Leah. And it will always be Leah until the end of the age. You've got to realize that maybe your answer is found in something else. This is how he so eloquently puts it. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world could ever satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That if I've been looking and I've been searching for all of these Rachels, they all turn out to be Leah, and it's always the way it's going to be, then could it be that we weren't meant to, be, uh, to find our satisfaction in the created world, but that we were meant to find it in another world? You see, this story begins at a well, and I think in order to understand it, we have to bring it around to another well. In fact, when the gospel writer John talks about it, he says, this was Jacob's well, where Jesus met a woman who had drunken from all of these different wells, only to find that in the morning it was always bankrupt. Five different husbands, and the man that she was now living with wasn't her husband, and she was empty. Maybe some of y'all feel like that today. Eh? Feel empty. You've been trying all these different things. Turn to drugs, maybe. Turn to pornography. Turn to relationship. Turn to friends. And in the morning, it always turns out to be Leah. So here's this woman. She's at a well. And Jesus asks her, Jesus asks her for a drink. And she says, oh, just tells the story. And basically, Jesus goes on to say, you know what? You will never find in this life what you're looking for. But I can give you living water so that you'll never have to come back to this well ever again. I can give you true living water that will wipe away all of your ugliness once and for all. And if you believe in what I say, then out of you streams of living water will come. And not only will you be refreshed, but you will refresh other people as well. See, the irony that Jesus was offering her that true thirst-quenching living water, but he was asking her for water. This is a picture of what would happen some years later on a cross where Jesus, the one, completely satisfied, completely filled, completely had his thirst quenched, and he said, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. Is Jesus the thirst-quenching one who became thirsty by losing his connection with the Father so that your soul and my soul could one day finally, forever be quenched. He says, this is what it means, people of God, that you are created for another world. Your satisfaction is not found in having a great child or having a, a, a great reputation or having these great possessions. Your satisfaction in life will never be found in that. Even if you have the greatest of these things, it was never meant to be ultimate. 
The only way we'll find ultimate satisfaction in life is if we take our eyes off of the things of this world and we find and drink from Christ who is a true fountain of living water. Then and only then, only then, will we stop running around looking for satisfaction in life, but we'll finally be able to drink and be satisfied and then to be able to give our lives to others. Let's pray. Guys, we've been hearing the same message six weeks in a row now. I think for some of us, it's time to stop running after the things of this life. Some of us in here think that you're a Christian because you've grown up in church. But as you're sitting here, you're you're living with this deep emptiness in your life and it's echoing inside of your heart. Because you realize that you haven't, if, if what Jesus says is really true, then maybe I haven't lived in what's really true because I'm not feeling that. If Jesus has not changed the way we live life, then the most probable right explanation is that he has not changed your life. That you've given yourself to religion, to church, but not to Jesus Christ himself. This is a testimony, according to 1 John. God has given us the life that is satisfying and eternal, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I don't want us to live under any illusions that just because you're here, you're drinking from living water, that just because you're here, you've been born again. If your life doesn't reflect it, and if your heart doesn't drink in the reality and are satisfied in Christ, then the biblical reason is because we're still living for the world. As we pray for a moment, I just want to give a, a, just a quick invitation with all of our eyes closed and our heads bowed. If anyone is like that and you're like, you know what, I need Jesus in my life. I need Jesus in my life. I just want to uh, invite you to just raise your hand where you are. I'm not going to uh, you know, call you out or anything like that, but I just want to talk with you this week later, send you an email, just contact, get in contact, because there's so much more at stake. If you're like that, just with, with everyone's, everyone praying, if that's you, just, you can just raise your hand. I need, I need Jesus in my life. Okay, cool. Good, good, good. Anyone, anyone else fetch you in this place? Just raise your hand. Okay, thank you. See you. Thank you. Yeah, anyone else like that? I need Jesus in my life. I've been doing the church thing. But maybe, maybe I'm not really, maybe I have never really been changed by the presence of Christ. Anyone else? Just raise your hand. We're going to pray in a second. Okay, I'm going to invite us to take a moment just to pray uh, together. If we can all repeat in your heart, um, it's a prayer to ask the Lord Jesus to fill us. And, and we'll, we'll follow up with those who have indicated so. But for others who haven't, come and talk with me, okay, or with Pastor Albert. But uh, l- as I pray this prayer, I'm going to pause after each 
Uh, each phrase, you can repeat this prayer in your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. I was made for you, but I live for other things. I've drunken from other wells. I've lived in sin. I've hurt you. I've hurt myself. I've hurt others. Thank you for sending Jesus to become thirsty so that my thirst could be quenched, to become ugly on the cross so that through the cross I could be made beautiful. I believe you did that for me. Be my forgiver. Be my master. Change me from the inside out. Help me to live in joyful freedom. As we continue to pray, let me give you guys time to respond for a minute or two and just asking the Lord God, whatever he may be speaking to you over. Let's respond. Let's respond. Let's not let this moment pass. But while God has spoken to you and to me, let's talk to him. So let's go there for a couple moments and we'll continue in our prayer. continue to pray as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper for those who are baptized or confirmed. First Corinthians tells us that we ought to examine our hearts before we come because many people have come to the table and instead of receiving blessing have received judgment because of the improper ways in which they've come. We're not living in obedience, or if we're living in outward rebellion to Jesus. Let's confess that to the Lord. And if we're unwilling to confess, then he would say, just remain where you are as we come to the table and reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ for us. Let's pray for a moment as we prepare our hearts to come, asking that he would make us aware the wonder of grace again. Let's pray for a couple another minute and then we'll I'll pray for us Father in heaven, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for being the one who alone can satisfy our hearts. Help us not to settle for anything less than all that you have for us. We thank you. Thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.